0: Hello and welcome to the first ever episode 13 of Fintech Insider. Today we're joined by Faith Reynolds from the Payment Strategy Forum and Lindsay Barber from City AM. We've got a great couple of weeks coming up for you with more and more guests. But first and foremost, we want to say thank you. We've been downloaded in 94 countries and we continue to top the iTunes business podcast chart. That's thanks to you. Later in the show, we have Costa Peric joining us from the Gates Foundation. But for now, on with the news. And so on with the news. And of course, joining us this week, we have uh, Lindsay Barber from City AM again. Lindsay, say hello. Hi. And Faith Reynolds from the Payment Strategy Forum. Faith, give us a hello.
1: Hello.
0: Nice to have you with us. So I think um, we've got a number of interesting stories this week. So let's just jump right into the first one. One from the Financial Times here saying banks are not making proper use of fintech, especially in their capital markets division on the the Financial Times. So Jason, you and I have talked about this one on previous podcasts and uh, finding it you know that a lot of banks had focused and a lot of fintech had focused on, you know, really the easy stuff, payments and lending, and, and it seems to have not
1: got further further in. What do we think is
0: going on here? Uh,
1: well, I think it's that, that wave that we were talking about, or well, the tide, I guess, would be an easy way of talking about it, where people have, have come along to pick off the underserved or overcharged consumer plays first, because actually that consumer technology thing, you know, is, is really some, somewhere to focus on. And then we've seen the, you know, new digital challenger banks come along, and now there's a lot of talk of SME banking or digital SME banking. And we're seeing this sort of tide go back into, it, you know, then into corporate and transaction banking. But, you know, I know nothing about capital markets. I know you've had a lot more sort of exposure to that world. Um, how do you think it fits?
0: So I think it's interesting because there aren't a lot of people that really understand how capital markets divisions in banks work. The vast majority of the startups that are in this space tend to be people that worked for one of the major investment banks or an asset manager for a few years, left and kind of rage quit and said, I can do this better myself. And I think those are the only ones out there. And then the only real people that understand them enough to invest in them are the banks themselves. And the banks themselves will have proven a track record to be able to invest in startups as a group of investment banks, but only when it's market structure. So if it's um, CLS Bank, you know, for, for FX clearing internationally, this is something that, you know, is worth sticking into Wikipedia and finding out what CLS Bank is, because they clear something like $1.4 trillion a day. It's absolutely phenomenal amounts of money flows through these these organizations, and yet nobody knows who they are, apart from maybe 30,000, 40,000 people on earth. So it's this it's this crazy thing where you've got this tiny group of people that knows about it, but this dramatic opportunity because when you talk to both large corporates and you know, asset managers, they feel just as annoyed with their banks as any consumer does. So they want to see change. And I think what Boston Consulting Group is saying here is there's probably a need for, for that to go there. Um, interesting story. I mean, I don't know if Faith, Lindsay, you had any thoughts here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The um, I, I think it- it's absolutely that kind of, like you say, the first wave. It's always going to be kind of doing that proof of concept of, oh, what's the fintech, what's this scary thing? Oh, we can make it, you know, very easy and palatable uh, to show that it works if it's just, you know, your standard retail banking. Digging deeper than that, I think, it's quite tough. Like you say, there's not as much expertise in it. Weirdly, it's probably where the banks make more of their money, so they should be looking at it. I think particularly it seems like they're more focused, like you say with the CLS, they're more focused on blockchain, which is probably an earlier stage. Mm -hmm. So I think it's probably just a case of, of, of just, you know, it probably will happen. It's going to take longer because it's happened later.
1: I guess the question is, you know, what's the drive? Because on, on the consumer side of things, there are massive changes in consumer expectations. Everyone's got a smartphone. Everyone uses Facebook. And you can see that that discrepancy with the services that are being provided. SME banking, you know, even worse. But when it's B2B and when it's large bank to large bank, you know, if they're using a fax machine and they always have, what moves them away from a fax machine or from a, you know, a telephone call? And it either has to be some amazing sort of revenue generating opportunity or massive cost savings
0: so you've got to bear in mind at the moment, capital markets are divisions of banks, especially in Europe, are bleeding from Basel III requirements, you know, capital requirements. That's the part of the organisation that's failing it. And you'll see if you look at the annual reports of most of those divisions, in, in certainly in Europe, their, their sort of profit pool has gone down by, you know, it, it's twenty five percent or less of what it was five six years ago. I mean, they are lopping body parts off. They they're cutting the limbs of the organization just to keep the doors open. But they've got the same cost of infrastructure. So th- just like um in a retail bank you have a set of products where the back end systems are old and kind of legacy and, and cost a lot. Now you've got these these legacy systems that you know kind of are all interwoven together. But what somebody described it to me as is is it's like performing open heart surgery in a nuclear power station in a populated <laughs> area, trying to change anything inside because the, I saw a stat somewhere that half of the money in the world moves back and forth across the entire world every day because of um, complex contracts like derivatives and, um, and some of the securities out there money moves around the world a lot faster because even though it feels like it's sitting in your bank account it's actually being packaged and repackaged and resold and that's really important for the lifeblood of the economy that money can move around the world in that way it's it's kind of like moving like water it's this really ephemeral thing but the cost of keeping that running the amount of people that actually understand how that works is limited and the ones that do say oh it's 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 difficult and it'll cost you kind of like plumbers (laughs) and then there are some people out there that will tell you that look there are fintechs that can do this small bit of the problem this small bit of the problem and uh, to which a bank's reaction is well i don't want you to solve a bit of the problem because the cost of change for me to solve a bit of the problem is so high i need you to solve all of the problem and only recently in the last couple of months i was talking to a chapman and leon reese um who's a friend of mine and he was saying. What if you could take all of these startups and put them together into a platform? Do like the sales force of capital markets. And I think I've heard four or five people coming up with this trend now. And I think that's that may be something that we start to see. So,
1: which I guess takes us on nicely to the next story. This was a thin extra piece about ING. The, what the CEO Raph Hammers at an investor day in the Netherlands recently uh, suggested or stated that they were going to invest uh, eight hundred million euros in digital transformation initiatives. Over the next five years, while shedding 7,000 jobs. Um, so, is this another? It's, it's interesting, 800 million, because you know, at least in the UK a couple of years ago, it seemed everyone was going to put a billion. You know? And I wonder if, you know, times are tough. Uh, and now, you know, now you need to put 800 million into into digital transformation.
2: Maybe it's just the currency
1: fluctuation. The maybe, currency. maybe. <laughs> a couple of years ago, it was everyone was standing up to say, we're going to spend a billion on digital transformation.
0: Oh, a couple were saying that we could spend two billion on digital transformation. I mean, Faith, how does a headline like this um, come across to you, especially when they say they're going to shed 7,000 jobs at the same time?
2: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I guess uh, there's a few different thoughts that occur to me. One is just the general kind of context, so the digitalisation of the economy. Where Where's that going? Where, where do all these 7,000 people go? I mean, what jobs do they get? And so there's that question about what's our kind of long-term view of a society that's much more kind of led by... Digital and automated, so just the whole kind of you know futuristic stuff. So I, I guess there is a question about you know what does our society look like in the new sort of digital world, and then I guess the other thing is just around things like inclusion and you know branch branches are just sort of shutting down left, right, and centre, and we need to find a way of being able to connect people into financial services. Without these kind of costly branches, but I, uh, you know, am interested. You know, Jason, what you're kind of thinking around that as a kind of a digital bank? How do you kind of interface with people who want that kind of personal touch or to be able to just talk to somebody?
1: Sure. Well, I, you know, society in entirety is going through a digital shift, but not all at the same time and not all at the same speed. So while there are, you know, it's not an age thing. I think it's a psychographic thing. It's a, are you digital or not? And there are you know the silver surfers who you know my my dad plays the xbox one with his uh, grandkids you know at night call of duty or whatever it's like you know he's, he's so into it hey dad um, but the uh, uh, Shout out that, to Jason Stabb. But it's not all, all at once. And so there are vast ways of society that just aren't going to be ready for that. But that makes it tough because now you've got you know four digital banks launching in anger next year, arguably. You now, Atom, Tandem, Starling, Monzo, all will all be launching you know a lot of a lot of products. Um, you've got all of the big banks spending billions a year on digitization and who's going to look after those, you know, the yeah. people who are left behind. And it's also,
2: it's also just, you know, even those incumbents that have got branches, I went, I went into a, to a branch recently, I've got an account, kind of not often used, but money goes in, and, you know, a payment went out over the last little <laughs> while, so I thought I would, but they never was me cards, so I've got these outdated cards went in, and the branch experience was just
3: rubbish,
4: <sighs> but, you
2: know, but actually their, their mobile app is one of the best, so it's like, oh, So, I kind of see where you put your investment, you know, they couldn't tell me what my transactions for the last year have been. Wow. You know, but they could if I just was willing to move. Mm-hmm. And actually, have you got, the, well, it's like, oh, I don't need it, so I haven't got the app, I haven't got this, I don't know my pin, I don't even know what the overdrive service is, I can't answer any of your security questions, it was a bit of a nightmare, to be honest. But but there's that, you know, there's that even where you've got a branch network, yeah. you can see the sort of transition through to digital, and actually it's about how do we help you move to digital. Yeah, let, yeah. let me upload the app onto your phone for you, let me talk you through how to use yeah. it. So there's that kind of, you know, there's that transition, and it's how we, how we get through that and how
0: we help people. It kind of reminds me of you know people who want credit for stuff they're supposed to do. Like you're supposed to be digital, you're supposed to be leaning down. You know, uh, it's the old Chris Rock sketch. I, I, I take care of my kids. It's like, yeah, you're supposed <laughs> to do that. Like you're supposed to do these things. Don't tell me what you're gonna do. Tell me what you're gonna deliver. And I think the problem they've got is setting an expectation in the market where we're gonna deliver this thing and then everybody will start measuring them. Okay, you said you're gonna deliver the thing. Where is the thing? Um, whereas actually, um, what I think the, the smaller banks have got, which is, I mean, was it Monzo said, here's our roadmap. Um, this is what we're going to deliver. And if we don't deliver it, we don't deliver it, but we're, we're going to work through it. And what do you think of it? There's, there's something about winning consumer trust there that I think is quite interesting and, and a different tack that um, maybe maybe bank PR teams could, could take a look at. But... Um,
2: I mean, I can completely understand why they do it. it, it you know, it's competitive. Uh, you know They're not going to be like, well, oh, this is our business model. Since, you know they're, they're not going to be completely open about it. I do think they need to be clearer. So some, you know, even the stuff that you know British banks are doing. I think it was an event a couple of weeks ago and Sparkleys Tech Accelerator. Um, someone asked the question of you know so you've been around how many years? A few years, two years, three years? Uh, the things that you've been working on. How many of those have actually gone through to actual products that your bank offers? And the answer was none. <laughs> So, even that spending, that, you know, it might be that they are spending money on doing these things and this digital transformation, what what does that actually produce across the bank um, as contributing to their business, um, you know, is questionable. Um, Uh, Do you think that's because it challenges, so anything that sort of properly kind of looks at sort of, say, the consumer experience starts to challenge quite a lot of the 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 existing ways of working, it brings in kind of risk and compliance and all of those things. Do you think it's because actually you can do some really cool stuff, but then you look at it and go, hang on a minute, I've just spoken to our legal or our risk, and and they've said no.
0: That's pretty much it.
2: Um, (laughs) So that might be why it didn't get past the kind of... Absolutely. it's, it's, uh, It's kind of...
0: One of of the things I blogged about a couple of years ago was this idea that um, innovation struggles to escape the death grip of committees in a bank. And there are so many layers of committees, and you know, um, this one has a parallel and a horizontal committee structure that I need to get to to this manco, so that I can go to XCO to talk to steerco about manco's XCO's steerco Are you like what? I, it's you just like I, I can't. People talk this weird language of like all of these different, and I need to talk to credit risk so that they can talk to wholesale risk, so that operational risk can talk to risk risk. and you just start to boggle the mind boggles but a lot of this is there reacting to banks having done something stupid 20 years ago and dealing with people's money it's there for a very good reason it's there to protect consumers but it makes getting anything done a victory and so if shipping a barely working app is is a victory in itself because you got it out Um, and if you build this amazing user experience What you get is this committee that says, oh, well, you know, you need a a longer T's and C's to make this work. And and the user experience is watered down, watered down and watered down. So then you eventually either don't ship the thing or you turn it live and never put any customers on it because, you know, they'd hate it. And so I think that there's this cultural thing that's really, really unfortunate. Um, having been close to some of the companies in, in the Textiles Accelerator, they had some great things, amazing products that are now working with other banks or that are now doing extremely well themselves with different customer bases. I saw an Air um, AirScore, fantastic company, you know, helping people who can't get access to credit or can't get access to, to bank accounts normally, get access to bank accounts by looking at big data. A bank should love that. But in theory, you know, it's actually very hard for a bank to implement that given all of their requirements, but they're doing really well with telcos now. So, you know, if this is helping startups and the bank has learned something from it in the process, maybe there's still a good business case there, but it's not the business case they set out to achieve, which I think is interesting.
5: So not that eight hundred
2: million will be going on just lots of meetings.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, and speaking of big headline numbers, Lindsay, there's one here that Deutsche Bank are in a race to settle the Department of Justice 14 billion US dollar fine. There's a number you would have liked to get your hands <laughs> on, right?
2: Yeah, I mean it's a it's an ongoing saga that's quite long winded, and and most of the you know or the majority of the UK banks have already settled this kind of stuff. So this this dates back quite a while. You know, I don't think anyone ever feels sorry for a bank that big. <laughs>
0: I gotta say, I do have a, a shred of sympathy for Deutsche on this one because having seen, having sat through a bank's internal training processes on uh, anti-money laundering and um, terrorist financing and, and you know, fin crime. They they are going bending over backwards to train their staff to understand what the rules are. Like the amount of times I had to retake that test because I couldn't figure out what type of country Iran was, and you know was it one, two or three cat? Like I don't know. And besides, I'm like the techie guy. Why are you training me on this? But uh, so there is a real effort to get people to know. But actually, I think it comes down to a different type of risk here. So you're trying to move money from A to B for large corporates who you have very big relationships with, who happen to have won a deal over here, and your only protection is to go look at a load of people's passports manually all uh, another bank is doing that for you and your only protection is to sit with a bank for a couple of weeks and watch how they do that process there is no like automation here there's no machine learning there's no there's nothing in there to really really help them um, there's a company called CRE analytics uh, launched by an ex Goldman guy. Um, And what they do is they look at um, a number of passports and a number of transaction bits of information, and they actually use machine learning to try and figure out is there an added systemic risk in performing this transaction here. And banks seem to look at that and turn their head sideways and go, I can see why that would be interesting. But then getting that live and really automating these processes seems really difficult. Manual processes, I think, are are causing a lot of risk, which um, I don't think is a story that's talked about.
2: It's weird as well because you can definitely, you know, computers are vastly better at humans than doing this kind of thing. But I imagine, you know, anyone who goes, oh, I've got AI that can sort this out for you as yeah. a bank. A bank is going to turn around and go, oh, but there isn't a person that has oversight of this.
0: Well, they want a wet signature. There's this, um, well, there's a liability thing and there's also a, um, there's this thing in banking that i saw where somebody went but i want a wet signature on that like it's like somehow getting getting a signature from a pen has just made everything more secure and it's like no it's way less secure and everybody in information security knows that but it's the process that was there before that you can always fall back to and and there's so there's that whole cultural thing but i think the regulator and everybody in the industry is reinforcing this thing it's all i mean
2: just going back to your point you know having sort of Sympathy and, you know, listening to you, I think, oh, yes, you know, I've done a bit of, you know, AML training. But do you think that there is a cultural issue more broadly or do you think actually this is just a a technical, these are technical problems? I think we could have just sorted out with much better kind of.
0: So it's going back. I think it's more a process issue than a technical issue. Uh, And it's a process and and a cultural issue. And the cultural issue is more about change of process than it is about um humans being evil i I fundamentally don't believe the majority of people who work in a bank or even some of the people that have allowed these transactions to go through are evil i think in fact quite the opposite they have a very hard job and they have very arcane processes and they're trying to do the best with it having met some of the people that work in compliance i i'm blown away by the the Professionalism of some of these people and what they're trying to do and the terrible tools they try and do it with. Um, and then somebody comes running to them and says, I've got this massive piece of business. This client has to be live tomorrow. And their only response is to say no. So they're the enemy inside the bank. You know, they're the business prevention department but actually so to be them is very, very hard and to give them tools to do their job better is also very, very hard because the people in that job don't get a lot of funding and support because they're not winning new business. I think that's a cultural issue. But
2: surely just in the way you've described that there's a cultural issue, there's the compliance department over here mm. and these people who win business over here actually, surely you want to see those things merged across the police. Actually the people winning business are complying you know, with the spirit of... Absolutely. So it's not, so it's not a, I mean, that's, if anything, that's one of the problems is that kind of split, that silo. So Yes, you know, no, but
0: you do see that um, they've now got um, kind of the, the people on the front line are liable for doing that. They have to do a lot of the compliance. They do most of the heavy lifting on the compliance stuff. They prepare all the documents. They, so they do a lot of that work and then compliance reviews it and then audit reviews that. So there's there's kind of these three stages in which it's done. So I think it's architected very well as a manual process, but it's a manual process. Um, so it's just uh, coming into this century, I think, is, is kind of the issue rather than um, anybody trying to be nefarious or evil, which, which is how it appears, I think, in the press. But again, nuance doesn't play well um, to to the public.
2: It just creates that whole sort of, bat, you know, sort of a blanket of mistrust. So, yeah. you know, we did some work, you know, wondering why people on the panel, the Financial Services Consumer Panel did, you know, a piece why don't people move when they hear about a big PPI mis-selling scandal? And part of it is because they think there's nothing better elsewhere, but part of it is that they can't connect that kind of global issue with their local experience. Mm-hmm. But what they know is that they don't like that kind of mm-hmm. global problem and it creates that sort of general feeling of mistrust and you know, and just general dislike. And you know, I think that the fact that there are such vast sums of money involved and actually people have earned vast sums of money is still quite sort of prevalent in people's minds, you know. Elsewhere, yeah. where they're still suffering from a, a, you know, the effects of the financial crisis, London has sort of moved on, but actually there are people whose lives are still affected by it. So I think that's, you know, that's when you that's when they need to clear it up quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Not to make everything about Brexit, but I think it's absolutely that uh, that there's a weird thing of going, we don't trust the big banks, you know, we're still connected with the financial crisis, but on the other hand, you know. Especially in London, we're going, oh my god, like we're going to lose all these jobs in banking because of Brexit potentially. Um, But we, no one cares, even though it really, really matters, because it will matter to those people, uh, you know, further out in the country because it's the general economy. I think, you know, I'll take a bit of responsibility, not all of it, as a journalist, of trying to explain how, yeah, that was bad, uh, you know, financial crisis is terrible, um, but also actually it's still quite fundamental to the economy um, and, and people should care. I think we definitely need to do a better job at like, explaining that and that, that it does matter.
0: Speaking of trust issues, um, there's a startup here called W Twenty One that's moved to Berlin, but not as old as it seems. Um, so this is an interesting story. If you haven't read it, um, it's on FT Alphaville and it's by a chap called Kadim Schuber, who is very, very interested in finding out what's really going on inside fintech firms because he's um, he's not con- he's convinced it can't all be um, hype and, and magic and, and and fairy tales. And as you get through this, W W20- 21 W- WB21, apologies, is a startup that looks like it deals in FX, a little bit like TransferWise, except its numbers, it appears to have um, processed uh, more than a million customers and um, sending cross-border payments of over $5.2 billion inside of one year, which took TransferWise four and a half years there's growth and then there's growth and then this is growth uh, is what and so Kadim's written this with his um, tongue firmly planted in his in his cheek and kind of got through to the point where he starts uh, calling out that the chap that's done this claims to have sold an organisation to Bank Thai in November 2008 but when you go look it up that uh, that sale appears to have never happened it was never on uh, on any records anywhere uh, but it did get a few headlines and similarly he's, he's then making he pulls out on the W WB21 website a bunch of articles where people have covered them in Forbes and Yahoo and Bloomberg Uh, but actually what they're covering is uh, links to the corporate overview pages that were created by WB21 themselves so there's yeah. There's, there's just something here that doesn't feel quite right. So I, I think, you know, is fintech potentially, um, the, the, are we having the second power technologies here? Is fintech just as bad as the banks? Like, can we can we risk a, a second trust issue problem coming?
2: This is a really interesting one. For me, it sounds like uh, they've found a very good opportunity to be able to add something to that press page by going, hey, we're in London and now we're moving to Berlin. Yeah. You know that's a great Brexit story. Um,
0: Topical, it's,
2: yeah. exactly hits hits um, all the right buttons for any journalist. Again, it's not to say that, that that's not the case, but you know there is a lot of bluster in fintech, which is good. You know that's the whole thing. You're a disruptor. You shout about these things. You know you would absolutely expect that of any startup.
1: It's, it's just one of those uh, things, isn't it? That there there are always going to be companies that want to. You know, push PR and push their stories and are sort of naturally a PT Barnum of you know of the fintech world mm-hmm. and you know where is that line what can you say and what can't you say you know and a lot of the the article goes into questioning a variety of claims and then getting responses from the company so they were definitely pushing the bounds of, of what you know including a link to Forbes and Inc and Bloomberg business really meant on their, their web page but as far as he's, uh, as a, you know, there's nothing, I guess, on the kind of legal side mm-hmm. that, um, that you'd say on this, apart from just trying to make a massive splash in order to, you know, to get more customers. It's an interesting one. Um, so slightly different
0: flavor. Next up, IBM have put out an article saying banks are now ready for the real world of blockchain, which is interesting since they're selling a lot of <laughs> blockchain things. But um,
1: so cynical. Uh, am I? Am I
0: really? This, well, um, and actually, look, i um, to, to to flip that around, they surveyed two hundred big banks and fifteen percent intend to implement full-scale commercial solutions as early as 2017 um, with mass adoption um, not far behind, 65% expecting to get there in the next three years. I think this is pretty pretty lofty expectations, but nobody's defined what does full-scale implementation mean. The, I, I get off asked on panels an awful lot of like, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, when did big data really happen? Like, when did mobile happen? <laughs> and historically, you look back after 10 years and you kind of go, it was that moment. But really, you know, history will judge that, so it's very hard to say. You can't deny the wave, I think, is coming, but it, the moment at which it flips is really interesting. I know, Lindsay, you've wrestled with, with that question a little bit. Do you have any views on, on that point?
2: Uh, it's surprising, um, and I think it just shows how when we talk about fintech and we question things like you know, how effective it is, where blockchain seems like it's slightly different just because if you look at who's backing it, you know, you've got the tech companies, you've got IBM, you've got, uh, you know, all the banks, basically. It seems like it's very quickly become the thing. Whether that pans out, and it does actually happen by 2017, 2019, is, is questionable. But I think it just shows how much... Banks are going big. Yeah,
0: and you got to define it, really. I think. Well, with, yeah. uh, I mean,
2: anyone could just go. Oh, well, we're using a little bit of blockchain for doing this tiny thing.
0: Yeah, lunch oh, Yeah, we're using room, room booking. Yeah. <laughs> blockchain for room booking. There you go. Uh, that that just happened. IP. It's, uh, J- it's, it's recorded. Jason came up with that use case.
2: There's no kind of dodgy changing the room booking at
0: the last minute. No, like, no, no kind of it's like, set. You well, know that. for sure. <laughs> There's an audit trail. <laughs> We've
1: all agreed to it, and if you get one of those room squatters, you can you proof of kicking them out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it might take the energy of a small country to run that uh, that process, but hey, I, I think it depends on your playful. consensus mechanism. So, <laughs> you could do it for uh, hot desking as well, couldn't you?
2: Yeah. Well, kind of like, there
0: you which go.
2: desk you book? Sorry.
1: just us yeah, stop podcasting
0: simple.
5: now. Or we'll go. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's totally it. Another little nugget in here that's quite interesting is um, they say financial markets institutions um, finding 14% of those financial market institutions intend to implement full scale commercial blockchain solutions in 2017. So this isn't just the banks. This is the likes of insurance companies and asset managers. So I've spent a bit of time with um, asset managers in the past couple of weeks. And the view is generally do I need to do anything right now. But it seems like a few of them have already decided, uh, which I think is quite interesting. Okay. Uh, moving on to the next story. Alipay are launching in three London stores. So Alipay, the famous um, Chinese uh, payment mechanism, the Chinese PayPal, I guess, would be the equivalent. Lindsay, do you have any thoughts on this one?
2: I think it's just going to take over. It's stealthily taking over. It's got such a huge, huge, huge market in um, China and Asia that it dwarfs what we're doing here in terms of, uh, kind of mobile pay and uptake of it. It's just massive. So it's a big um, kind of Chinese holiday that's mm-hmm. on you know WeChat and across all the social networks in China, um, is just astonishing how much money. Um, I think it's coming kind from of red envelope thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, hazy details, but it's mind blowing. And you know all this is happening. We're just sat here going, oh yeah, you know people love to use uh, Apple Pay um, to do that oyster in the morning. If they're doing that here, um, I think it just serves, uh, you know, kind of your Chinese visitors coming here. Um, But they are, if they do that and they roll that out and they lay the groundwork, um, I think there's a potential there for them to be offered across Europe you know
0: that that could rival that Um, it could could be a a foot in the door couldn't it I mean we did an Asia Pacific episode um, episode 8 of Fintech Insider for those of you who may have joined us recently and didn't didn't catch it and we talked at length about some of the giants like uh, Ali Payne and WeChat uh, who are doing yeah, tr- just tremendous volumes. And it's interesting that the, the Chinese tourist market is now significant. We were talking before the podcast started, Faith, about how you know, there are some stores that have you know, kind of adopted these payment mechanisms because they have such high footfall of Chinese tourists. Could that be a way into the market for some of these companies? Because these fintech players that, or, or payments players in China haven't really gotten out of China, but they have such huge scale in their home market, do they ever need to? It's...
2: I think I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? I think it's just something about kind of the, the kind of force of retailers in, in the payment space and just the role that they play in kind of bringing new things to, to market. But it's quite a, um, I think one of the things that I'm interested in is the, the extent to which there are specific consumer segments and we can design services to, around them, or so, you know, Body Shop has decided to kind of invest. In Alipay, and for a specific segment because it's worth a lot of money, and you just see, you know, sitting on the payment strategy forum, we've been thinking about, um, you know, changing payment system. But one of the one of the ideas is to facilitate massive innovation payments. And one of the difficulties is is coming up with use cases, saying actually you might be able to do this new type of payment. But one of the things suggested is actually might have new payments for new segments of the community. So actually, you know, for students there might be in this new kind of type of payment. And it just made me think of that as actually, yeah, there's you know, if you can get a big sort of segment of people who will want to use one type of payment, so it's actually then you, you, you've got retailers who are willing to, to work with that. It's
0: quite, Jason, you were mentioning this when it comes to uh, Revolut, um, you were sort of saying that there are certain use cases for which people will use a new product and will change because they, they have that
1: specific need and it's a good first way to get people to adopt something. Yeah, I guess you've got looking – this is looking at it from, from two sides. On one, one side, you've got very small, young startups that want to, to make a splash, to, to gain their beachhead, head to, in order to grow into big companies. So rather than offering a mass market product, you have to find you know, smaller, very specific niches that you can then serve, especially if they're underserved and overcharged. Mm-hmm. So travelers have traditionally you know, fallen into that category with Forex uh, fees from their banks and credit card companies. Uh, Students uh, you can pull out, you could pull out immigrants, so you've got companies like Moniz that are very focused specifically on helping people that would find it difficult to open an account because of KYC, you know, problems. Uh, You can focus on that. So on one hand, you've got the kind of the small end. And then you've got Alipay, and they are not, you know, they are in no way, you know, comparable to those small um, players. They represent like the 900 pound gorilla on the far side of the, of the earth. Um, that could, could seriously take on just about anyone. I mean, their, um, I was just looking at their Wikipedia page, but they um, had the biggest market share in China with 300 million users and control of just under half of China's online payment market in 2014. According to Credit Suisse, the value of their online transactions grew uh, in 2008 to around $4 trillion, so $660 billion, uh, in 2012. So, you know, this is a company. That has that um, has control of just under half of China's online payment uh, marketplace, and is looking to go elsewhere. So, and they're looking to come to Europe. You know, so um, so just in terms of just sheer firepower, sheer number of users, you know, sheer capabilities, they're there. That you know, that isn't. It could be seen as a beachhead, but with a, a massive army behind it, rather than a <laughs> tiny startups looking for a secluded cove to, come and, uh, you know, <laughs> to land. One of the things I often say to uh, people who
0: are just starting their career in fintech, there's a couple of people I've been speaking to recently, is, is study Alipay, study WeChat. Like, if you want to know what the future of fintech is going to look like, look east. If you haven't, and you work in a fintech startup, or if you work in a bank and you've not at least read the Wikipedia page of these things, you absolutely need to because they're the future. Um,
2: yeah, speak- as well, sorry, just to give it an example of just how big potentially it could be to rival any other kind of payment system in, in Europe. It's very much like smartphones. Apple, huge, you know, big in the West. As soon as Chinese manufacturers started doing stuff, they. Easily starting to rival Apple, but they've got that big, huge base just being China, in China, the and then market. they can grow it in Europe. Um, like that China market is just so huge that. Yeah, it's
0: great home market. Speaking of growing, Grow is a company that launches its app for socially responsible investing. Um, I think it's US-only focused, but it's interesting. We've seen apps like kind of uh, Robinhood and Stash and um, robo-advisors like Betterment. This one looks like it's mobile-only, and it's focusing only on sustainable investments, focusing on a younger, uh, younger set of users who are more selective about what they want to invest in and, and how they spend their money. I think this is an interesting one. Fifth, do you have any thoughts on this? Is this a trend going to see more of do you think in in
2: the Um, yeah I mean I think there's there's definitely room for more robo advice isn't there there's lots of kind of discussion about it although it still represents actually a very tiny percentage of of advice. I think this is a really interesting one because one it you know it focuses on social responsible investing and and also because it's giving those sort of smaller funds you know kind of exposure to to kind of a new market. So in that sense it's really sort of seems quite kind of up and coming quite positive. I guess that the question which which I have is just that the whole cost and charges stuff in investment is very opaque, and mm. we're still struggling with it. And these platforms are doing better, but actually, we're still kind of wondering if we're surfacing all the costs. So, you know, if you're aware of things like Mifid and Pritch, you'll know that there's a discussion about how we surface all of the full costs that people are bearing when they make investments. And at, and at the moment, we, we just. We just don't know what the full costs are. Mm. And and it's just difficult to know. Is this, is this actually, is it, if it's, it says 0.25%, is is it? Or, mm. You know, what are the fund charges? Are they are they in there or not? And so there's this whole thing about, you know, socially responsible investing. I want to know, is the app socially responsible, actually? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, has it really kind of pulled those out? And there's, you know, so it's quite, uh, I think, it's, it's an interesting space. I expect we'll see more, um, especially, so the other thing I've kind of been looking at is in open banking. So as the kind of, flow of people's transactional data becomes available, the extent to which we'll see personal financial management platforms merge with kind of more advice platforms because obviously you get a much more holistic view of some of these finances. So kind of interested in that space and thinking we'll see much more sort of robo-advice. And apart from the sort of transparency and costs and charges, the other thing is just protection, so there's this big kind of debate about what's advice, what's guidance, you know, do people know that they're covered, you know, do they have access to, you know, FCA compensation, redress, or not? And um, and I think that's just, it's a, it's a fascinating debate, and I think in some senses those answers are very clear about what constitutes guidance, what constitutes advice, you know, there's a lot of, oh, we're not quite sure, but actually, you no, know, if you read it, it's, it's fairly clear. I think the, the, the difficulty I see is just as, as our finances become less sort of product-based and more kind of sort of service-based mm-hmm. <laughs> service from a consumer point of view, it all just blends into one. Mm-hmm. And so, it's just sort of, you know, interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, but where does, where does robo-advice fit in with that? Because that does seem to be a, a gray area. I know the FCA with their sandbox are very specifically looking at robo-advice because when you've got algorithms. That are essentially guiding you along a certain kind of process. That isn't an individual. It isn't a financial advisor. That that algorithm hasn't passed any exams. You know, uh, I guess on some in, in some ways, people want the equivalent of a personal banker and financial advisor looking after their finances. But on the other hand, want it both ways. that if that goes wrong, then I you know I want my money back. Um,
2: yeah, I mean I think there's a, there's a difference, isn't there, between people wanting their money back because their investment went down, and they didn't expect that. That's that's fine. We don't expect people to get covered for that. But where they've been missold or they haven't been given good advice, then actually, yeah, they they're you know they're entitled to getting some sort of compensation for that or to be able to complain or whatever. And I think that's that's the, the, the that's the space really that we're talking about. We're not talking about where investments went down, oh darn, I feel upset. We're talking about where people have been given the wrong advice for their circumstances and you know uh, we we've got kind of on the we've got this sort of idea that algorithms, they're not people, they don't take exams. No but they are but the people who write them take exams and actually there is a question about the extent to which we think algorithms are really good for running a whole load of other stuff. You know, if we think they can cope with automated compliance, then actually what's the extent to which I should expect them to be pretty darn good at working out my finances, looking at all my transactional data and coming up with good recommendation. And actually there's so there is that kind of I think it's it's blurred. Um, But I think it's a lot to do with the people. People have a general sense that they're protected, don't they? They just if something goes wrong in this country, you feel like there's somewhere to go. And I think it's just that that space there is. How do we help people understand there isn't anywhere to go? Sorry, you made your own decision. And I think as well. Sorry, I just said something like this. I mean, the whole point of it is, I guess, uh, you know, it's an app on your phone. It's it's targeting a kind of millennial audience where it's like, you know, you should do this. Uh, You know, you can, you know. It's really, really positive safe, in any sense. Yeah, future, there's lots of good things about it. it. Much more open rather than a kind yeah, of and keeping it and focusing on socially socially responsible investments, which is really was really exciting to see. Actually, seeing more of those those ones coming up. Absolutely. So. But then on the other hand, I would be very personally kind of dubious because I know nothing about it. It's like, can I trust this app to look after my money in a way that you know? Am I going to leave that here? Am I I'm being it. an idiot, you
1: know. <laughs> yeah, I um. Back with sort of Starling Monzo, we used to talk about ethical with a big E and a little E. You know, there's like ethical banking in terms of you're not going to invest in, you know, arms manufacturers yeah. and invading third world countries. And then there's ethical in not, you know, screwing customers by sending them, you know, mm-hmm. massive uh, unauthorized overdraft charges. But it does seem that there's the kind of day to day ethical, you know, way of doing business that. That a big proportion of the population, especially young people, are very attracted to. They want to do business with people and with organisations that they share values with.
2: Goes uh, back again to, to what we were saying about um, if you can find a niche audience, which, you know, niche mm-hmm. makes it seem like it's small, but actually can be quite lucrative. Um, I think there's probably a growing demand for that, where it is. You want to be doing something good. You don't want to be um, investing in, uh, you know, contributing to the environment, going tipped up.
3: (laughs) Seth
0: Godin calls this idea tribes, the idea that um, in marketing now you identify with a tribe. You identify with people that have the same beliefs as you wherever they are in the world and brands try and recognize a tribe but you see this with um, sports marketing brands you know Adidas Nike or they, they, they represent something about you they're aspirational you you are this sort of person so you're attracted to this sort of brand and seeing this in how you do your investing now coming up through apps is, is quite interesting it says something about you that you use the grow app and you invest using it and it might also attract an audience to it that hadn't looked at investing I mean the under 35s are notoriously bad for not saving i I resemble that remark um, in many ways. Um, and I think that it, it's good to try and get people into the idea of, of saving. Um, there's, a, there's a next article here um, the, from The Memo. There's an organization called Money, M-O-N-I. They give financial inclusion and dignity to European migrants and refugees. Jason, you've had a look at this story. It's, um, it's a little little all over the place.
1: Yeah, so they say that for, uh, for essentially 2 million refugees arriving in Europe, like, They've got no hope of opening a bank account. You know, there's no way. You know, when, when you have this tattered a piece a of paper, and you know someone arrives, like, how the hell do you open an account? I know, like, well-educated, you know, uh, financially secure people who struggle to open a bank account when first you know arriving in the country, coming from first-world countries. Mm-hmm. So essentially, for you know, for two million refugees. They're cut off from you know the fabric of society, from banking, from therefore getting a place, getting a job, getting all kinds of stuff going. And I know sort of monies and uh, money, we're going to have to be you know have struggles with these brands, I'm sure at some point. Mm-hmm. That is one of those again underserved and problematic areas of how do you get someone to prove their identity, um, so that on one hand you know you're not allowing terrorist funding and fraud and you know everything else, but on the other hand you're helping. You know, essentially two million you know, migrants who are, who are you know, coming to the country. I, I don't know if you've seen anything about it.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I, just, I, I thought it was great. I mean, I, um long time ago, spent time trying to help um, asylum seekers open accounts and you know, it, was, it was really hard. Even sort of basic documentation from the Home Office, which they would use as a kind of, you know, as their part of their ID. You know, the Home Office would get the order of their names wrong because they're just different names, they're not used to it. And, and it wouldn't match their passport And the bank, so sorry you know, so you then write to the Home Office who then would send you a document, well, whenever, you know, you might not actually get the document, so in some cases we didn't. So seeing something like this where actually, you know, there's a a kind of tech firm working with government, working with kind of um, the police and others to kind of create a process for helping people open bank accounts, helping people with their identity is really, really brilliant and I think the thing that strikes me through this is that there is no reason why, in a country like the UK, we couldn't be expanding this? If it's possible for those different organisations to work together to help um, new migrants or asylum seekers who are coming into the country get ID, then actually it should be the same for ex-prisoners who really struggle.
5: Mm-hmm. It
2: should be the same for people on benefits who are in temporary housing, and um, it shouldn't be as complicated as we seem to be making it. So I was like, great, let's expand it. Where can we go next?
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I think the. Um, the migrant story is topical and tends to get the headlines, but actually it, financial inclusion, um, you know, not being able to get a bank account is, is a huge issue for swathes of society that haven't migrated. And actually, you know, probably it goes back to the Brexit story. People focus on the migrants so much and they become almost demonized because it, it appears outwardly like they're the only ones that anybody's trying to help when the reality is that's clearly not true. And an organization like this is, is generally, I think, trying to financially include a whole bunch. Yeah. And, and again, the process point you make is a really interesting one. You know, it's not computer says no, it's like oh, process says no. Ordering of names different to passport or c- com, you know, process says no, spit I it out. That
2: I had trouble opening a new, bank accounts to do with a mortgage because they they missed my last name or something and it's like well I've had a bank account in the UK since I was 17 Mm -hmm. Uh, you know it's just
0: and this is what I mean about processes, like bad Absolutely. data bad data in different places through old processes um, and somebody going, oh, this doesn't match that, then the answer's no. Whereas actually you could start to pull f- from more sources of data. You could go back to the customer in real time and say, oh, we've appeared something's wrong. Could you go get some more evidence from somewhere else, please? Yeah, okay, Or well, I'll link you to a but, DVLA. Yeah, I, but
1: then you, you, you get back to the underlying problem of identity. You know, uh, and then you look to places like India with Adar, you know, where um, they got, you know, in four years, uh, essentially registered 750 million people. So it's That's, digital
2: ideas. Digital ideas. what idea. this comes back to, isn't it? Is actually What they're able to do is that they uh, linked biometric police record to their identity. So they kind of took fingerprints and stuff. And it's, it's about digital ID being stored in a place that's sort of safe and reliable, that, uh, that banks can use. I don't but don't necessarily that you have to have an official digital ID. We do so much of our lives online at the moment. Um, you can generally tell, and I'm pretty sure there's uh, startups working on this in terms of credit scoring based mm. on your activity on social media. Mm. Um, it is a much better barometer than Official documentation. That's quite good for authentication, authentication or, but, it yeah, is actually but you're you're it's actually a sort of identity. It's the very kind of the starting identity. So, mm-hmm. authenticating is quite good. So, when you kind of have to re go in, you can kind of have a picture, or you can say, well, actually, for credit scoring, there's lots of. But when, it's, when you've got to kind of ID somebody, I don't know. I think it's. The definition it
0: of identity is really important there to understand yeah. that debate because the definition of identity is a government giving you a document and saying, your faith. You're Lindsay. It's, it's, it's where they point at you. Here is your thing that proves you are you. That make, they, a government actually gives you your identity. You never had it before. Until you get a birth certificate, you actually don't exist. You're not a person, um, which is quite
1: an interesting idea. But, but I think that, that that goes against this underlying, um, I would say, it's not a trend, but a, a zeitgeist, something that's a feeling across the country that goes against ID cards, that goes against the national ID scheme. You know, in some ways, there's this there's this thing of whoa, well, you know, if you you register everyone, that's a fascist move. You yeah. know, I want my freedom and to be anonymous. But on the other hand. Everyone having an identity would make a lot of, you know, digital... I think also best. people do have
2: identities. I suppose that's the thing, is that in the end, the, you know, that the government we might not want the government to do it, but actually financial services companies are just going to end up doing it on behalf of government, and government will just pull in data from financial services companies like they do already. Yeah. just hard copies. I, we want statements of so-and-so. Well, okay, we'll provide these statements from yeah, this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it already happens.
0: For a number of years, I've been saying identity is the problem in banking, and it's probably the problem in terrorism. It's the problem in politics. It's like the problem. Uh, it's, I think it is the biggest problem because it's it, it, it is, it really is. Well, uh, who am I? Yeah. You are. <laughs> so there's this movement now towards um, self sovereign identity. Um, one of the UN development um, goals, so I think, for 2020 <laughs> and 2030, is the idea to try and give everybody a self sovereign identity who can't get a government issued identity. And the idea of self sovereign identity is if no government identity Fires you. You are still a person with legal rights and obligations. So how do you solve that problem? And it's something they're actively working towards. So if I'm a migrant coming from a country where I never had a passport, never would have a passport, I would still have a track record of at the point at which I was born and I was probably vaccinated. Somebody took a photo of my face and I I now exist, and data about me can be collected in some way. But then, who manages that data for the world? Like, there there are a lot of governance questions to your point. It's very politically non palatable to have a centralized database for these things, which, with my blockchain hat on, kind of comes to the rescue.
2: It does allow MPs to kind of extradite people, not caring where they go. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a big political thing, isn't it? We don't want you in our country, we're going to extradite you. But it's like, you don't have a country to go to. Doesn't matter. You've got this new self-sovereign place <laughs> yeah. that's nebulous. You haven't got any rights apart from these ones. So well, they should so talk to strange.
6: Elon Musk it's, and go to Mars. To
2: <laughs> it's really interesting that it's um, it's financial services pushing this forwards and this kind of thing. Really, I think this story is really a great example of like this dream that you know people who are interested in fintech have of like it's gonna. Change the world and serve the underbanked, um, but it is you know you've, you, the, the smartphone is basically the only reason this is happening. Um, we, you know, you've got to think of all the massive. Um, you know, more people in um, I think Asia are more likely to have um, or certain countries in Asia are more likely to have a smartphone than they are a bank account. So if they have a smartphone and you do. Banking on the phone, mm-hmm. you can therefore serve them, but it's making them exist in this economy through finance more than anything. I don't know if that's, I mean, it's good to get people into the economy and, and, and give them an identity based on this. Um, just shows the power of it, really. It?
0: You do need that identity to, to make a, a huge, huge difference, I think. Um, the, the last story we had up is um, really, um, a, few weeks old, actually, it's one on Euromoney that says, um, Financial inclusion is changing the face of banking. Um, which I, I don't know if I agree with the, the, the statement there. I think I'd probably rephrase it to, Financial inclusion could change the face of banking, but I don't know that it has faith. Do you have any views on this?
2: Well, on the title, I guess um, it depends where you're talking about banking, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in some countries, it is changing the face of banking because actually there's a huge unpopulated, you know, unbanked population who are now becoming banked so actually in certain populations it is changing things quite drastically so they've got lots of different international examples haven't they of, of where kind of you know people have been able to, to start businesses and you know create jobs and, and sort of floating branches all of that sort of stuff so actually in some senses you know financial inclusion is there's there's kind of great swathes of, of the world which have not been served before which are which are now um, I think it's just it's difficult when you're sitting in the UK where you know it, financial exclusion sort of counts for about 1.5 million people, 660,000 households, it kind of, you think, well, actually financial inclusion doesn't really change our world. But in other parts it's we see quite dramatic.
0: Yeah, the, the percentage of people who aren't financially included in some parts of the world is, is much, much higher. Yeah. Okay, um, I, with that, we're going to throw to our sponsor and we'll come back with an interview with Faith.
6: Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
0: And thank you very much to our sponsor. So still with us, we have Faith Reynolds and, and Lindsay Barber still. And Faith, we wanted to take the opportunity to learn a little bit more about you since you've uh, kindly joined us today. So who are you and what do you do? <laughs>
2: <laughs> What's my identity? Sounds like speed dating.
5: Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not very good at speedy responses to the question. I do a mixture of things. So I work part-time and flexibly. I live in Devon, three kids and a dog and a husband. So that takes a little bit of my time up. But um, I also work um, for the Financial Services Consumer Panel, which is one of the statutory panels that advises the FCA on consumer interest and regulation.
1: So you're the regulator of the regulator. <laughs> you're like the, the super regulator.
2: <laughs> Not quite. We do sit within the kind of governance and accountability framework. But um, but there are four panels, you know, so okay. we're just the one that focuses on consumers. And so that's, sort of, I've done a mix of stuff on that. I've been doing that for five years and that's just a real range of things. So a really wide portfolio of stuff and I've done things on enforcement and redress and led of the work on there. Access and vulnerability and more recently I've kind of, you know, looking at technology and innovation so um, a lot about kind of consumer people regulation financial services and i also joined the payment strategy forum uh, a year ago and the payment strategy forum is it's got an industry consumer mixture of people a forum of people who come together under the auspices of the payment systems regulator to develop the kind of the strategy for collaborative industry activity in payments so it's sort of like the plumbing of payment systems, uh, and so looking at the strategy for that. So where in the collaborative space, where we need to, where the industry has to work together, what is it going to do, and how? So if you look at things like PayM or CAS or fast payments, all of those things had to be kind of put together, in a strategy had to be, uh, you know, had to be thought through, and the industry had to collaborate to deliver it. And so we're looking at what next.
1: So how does that fit in with the payments sort of systems regulator?
2: So um, the the forum uh, is is an industry body, um, but it's set up by the payments systems regulator. The regulator, after kind of lots of failed approaches at sort of self self regulation in payments, the Payment systems regulator was set up, and um, and it in, in it sort of one of the first things it did was set up the forum, and say, okay, you need a strategy and you need to decide what you're going to do. If you won't tell us, then we will, we will step in. So obviously, everybody kind of gets together and goes, it's all right, okay, <laughs> we're going to do it. But it's, you know, it's the first of its kind. So it's actually, it's not just industry. It's not just the incumbents. It's the FinTechs. It's the challenges, consumer representatives, corporate, you know, the, the retail side, corporate's coming alongside as well. So, um, and, and so we have kind of had a draft strategy go out and um, are now looking at kind of finalizing that for, for publication in November. Very nice.
0: Um, so, tell us a little bit more about some of the work that goes on inside the Payment Strategy Forum. Like, What kind of things would it do?
2: So, when we first set up we kind of created some objectives and then looked at creating working groups which looked at different areas. So, one worked on financial crime, one on um, simplifying access to the market. So, there's a big kind of space where you have direct and indirect access. And so, it's looking at simplifying all of that. It's a very costly process. And also looking at what did the what's the end user needs and what do people actually want mm-hmm. from payments? Uh, and then a group which was sort of looking at the horizon. So what's on, what's on the horizon, what is the tech coming? Mm-hmm. And those sort of groups all kind of merged, and we've now sort of, one of the, the key planks of the strategy is around a simplified payments platform. Mm-hmm. there's a new payments architecture so it's looking at um you know there are other kind of strands to the to the work you know to encourage you to go and read the strategy um but uh but it's a kind of a particularly interesting one because it sort of says actually how could we re-envisage payment systems and so it's moving from a structure where we've had sort of individual payment system operators who deliver a specific product like a direct debit or a check and it's sort of saying actually what's where, you know we've had to work together we've all had to collaborate it's been de- you know designed it's kind of come about organically it's created some kind of problems if you like of the way it's sort of worked out with direct and indirect access how do we address all of those problems and create something that's responsive to users versatile efficient and so the simplified payments platform is a go at that and it's about sort of transitioning very kind of you know, safely and securely and sensibly to a kind of a new payment system where you, you have a simple push payment is the kind of core basic of it. And, and then you kind of have a layered architecture, you move to common messaging standards, so using ISO 222 which allows more kind of data to flow with payments and kind of building it with open APIs, so that actually when you want to make a change to part of the payment system, instead of having everybody to agree the change and kind of plan it in advance and collaborate actually you can take it out, change it and stick it back in, a bit, you know, a bit like a jigsaw piece without it kind of ruining everything else so yeah, so there's a kind of whole piece there, um, but one of the really interesting things is around how it kind of allows innovation.
0: So you mentioned um, looking at what what do people want from a payment system? What do people want from a payment system?
2: So um, the strategy forum set, set out at the beginning, it's, it had a wider community. So there's been lots of people involved through working groups, but also people who've come to events and round tables on the way and sort of follow the journey. And it set out with a kind of list of problems. And one of the key, there's a, a few key things that came up. People wanted more control, they want more assurance that actually when they make a payment, it's going to the to the right place, and they wanted to to, to be able to reconcile you know, invoices and stuff like that much more, more quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the one of the interesting spaces around this idea of a a feature on payments that allows you to kind of accept, reject, or postpone a payment. So we call it request to pay. Mm-hmm. And um, but it's really interesting because it's kind of like how what's the best way of delivering that is mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm in my head all the time we've kind of got, do we need a big change on a payments platform or actually we wait to PSD. Front of it, yeah, P, this is an overlay service, this is PSD two. Actually a TPP could probably deliver some kind of, you know, consent for a payment to go out of my account. So it's all very interesting, but it some of it just sort of thinking about the financial inclusion article that we were looking at earlier, relates to actually how do we help those people on the lowest incomes kind of control payments. One of the reasons that people don't access don't use the facilities of bank accounts they might have access to is because of their inability to control the flow of money.
0: That's interesting. So, it's worth considering that you you made an interesting point in in an earlier answer that the payment systems have kind of evolved over many, many years and now you've got they, they don't really talk to each other they're a bit inefficient and we you know the uk is considered by many to have like a world-class payment system but actually there from the sounds of it there there are people who are not getting good value from it there are people who are having money taken out of their account that they're not in control of is there other ways that you can make them feel more in control simply by changing the architecture of it or are the things that um, other organizations need to do as well and, and how can people get involved in that
2: Yes, yeah, so it's a real mix. I mean, I say there are lots of people talking together. I think it's just there is a kind of, <laughs> so don't get me wrong, there's inefficiencies, but it's a historic thing. There are, mm-hmm. you know, obviously. But there is, I guess, you know, how do we make something like giving people control over their, their payments? I mean, one thing is, you know, continuous payment authorities are in the backside because there's a lack of transparency and you don't know when they're going to hit your account. So, so for our
0: listeners, just yeah. define a continuous payment so authority.
2: So, that would be, um, so, it, it, to, purpose, you know, to all intents and purposes from a consumer point of view, it looks like you've filled out a direct debit form, except that there's no guarantee and actually you're giving somebody else permission to take uh, money from your account. So, a pool payment, but you're giving them authority to do that, but over a and a continuous period of time,
0: and the amount of money that they take may go up or down. Exactly. So they so, could take five pounds this month, and next month you might get a really big phone bill for uh, yeah, hundreds of pounds. That's
2: right, and they can take it when they want. So this is a particular issue in payday lending, if, if you're kind of aware of that sector, where payday lenders were kind of saying, "Right, you owe us this money. You set up a continuous payment authority. We're just going to keep hitting your account until we get the money we want," which kind of is it was a bit sort of naughty. So that the regulators said, "Okay, only." two CPAs and then you kind of have to you have to wait. So that whole issue of actually, you know, do I know when money's coming out of my account? Can I see that on my statement? Can I see what it's for? All of those sort of questions have come up. And so there's sort of stuff that actually on the supply side you can do is just sort of, you know, don't design products like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of basic kind of stuff. <laughs> Sorry. You know, just make payments transparent and give people control in the moment. But there's also other, you know, with something like request to pay it is a broader thing because the issue for, that kind of comes often with direct debits, for instance, is if you're on a, a low or unstable income and you, know, you you want to take advantage of the reduced cost of bill payment that you get, so you're incentivised to use direct debits because it's cheaper for utility payments to, to issue, so therefore they drop your bill down. So you want to use that facility, but actually if you've got a low or kind of unstable income, you don't have the money in your account, so it kind of creates charges and causes problems. And so you don't use it. And so actually, you just use cash. And, you know, I'm still, you know, talking to a friend the other day and helping her out, went down to the co op, put cash on her keys for gas and electricity. It's still you know. And she got money out of an envelope to do that for me. She's, you know, she's got a bank account. But there's this issue of kind of uh, security control can I make the most of my money? And so, there's this poverty premium that people talk about in the UK is that you know, it can cost you just over £1,000 extra if you're not using facilities. Wow. So, this request to pay, is the idea is if you had a feature like that on something like a direct debit, you could actually say, hang on a minute, the money's not coming to my account yet, so no, you can't have it, but you can have it in 10 days' time, because I know that's when I'm going to get paid. So it's that kind of feature.
1: But, but I guess you know, that leads to questions about where these features need to be. Do they need to be buried deep in the architecture? Or can they be actually through that you know that that back for better yeah. rates? You know, I just spent the last few years you know working specifically around these kinds of problems, around how you connect people with their money in real time. How you really uh, you know get away from that uh, that place where people just don't know sort of mm-hmm. day to day, month to month, where they are, or you know three weeks after payday. You know, how much money have I got in my account? Is this a good month or a bad month? There's there's yeah. just a lot there that I think. You know, new challenges and, and new services will will provide uh, provide yeah. capabilities for. Uh, I guess I'm interested in what uh, additional architecture you know would come along that makes that easier because this request to pay sounds you know because uh, yeah. one thing we would we uh, talked about before is about you know if you've got a gym direct debit. And a yeah. electricity bill and a mobile phone bill mm-hmm. and a mortgage payment all mm-hmm. coming out and there's only a bit of money left in your account.
2: So how do you schedule those? Uh, which which
1: yeah. one of those do you really want me to pay and which one do you want me to leave or, yeah. or to bounce? And actually bouncing a payment, you know, doesn't have to cost anything in terms of just saying, you know, no. It's just one of those charges that have just been added on of, Oh, well, that's an administrative charge, you know, we're we're going to charge you for what well, what administration, you know? Yeah. So I think there's there's interesting questions as to how that comes at the, whether by the service provider or what architecture needs to change behind the mm-hmm. scenes that faster payments or direct debits will yeah. provide.
2: And I think that's I think that's oh, a thing, is yeah. so that actually it's at the moment, you know, I think the, the, the forum's still working through actually what, what what do we mean, what do we need? And I and for me, my sort of a, as a kind of independent person, my question is actually does it need to be a system Thing that we require does it need to be a full overlay service on an ar- payments architecture, or actually, can we just do this with TPP's PSD2? Now, the the kind of the, the simplified payments platform makes that much easier to do. So that's the kind of that I'm sure there's some other technical things it does. I, I don't go that far. I'm a consumer person. So, <laughs> but there's a, but it does it does facilitate much more of that, and it, it kind of allows that transfer of data as well. I mean, I think the other thing that's quite interesting about how some of this fits with open banking. In PSD2 is we're talking about sort of enhanced data, so st- sending additional information with payments. So you want to send an invoice, you want to part, you want your VAT to pay off here, you want to so pay straight to the HMRC, you want to pay the, the um, provider or whatever, the supplier straight off here, and you can provide, you know, you provide this in- additional information with the payment. And I was talking to uh, one of the people I was saying, well actually if, if you're making kind of if you're sending invoice information through with a payment. Would you be required to make that available as open data as part of my transaction data through Mm -hmm. open banking? And I guess the answer is probably yes. So that makes, there's just this sudden world of additional data that comes on board. Mm And I start thinking, actually, there's, lots of new ways and that, that people might be able to make payments and much quicker if you start thinking about how does this have an impact on tax credits or childcare tax credits and all that kind of complication when you get childcare and you have to kind of make a payment and then get the tax office to pay you back and your receipts and then the provider has to, to, to make payment as well and it has to be verified I mean all of that could be much
0: massively more simplified Yes. and surely this is um, services that banks if they were you know, kind of getting ahead of them, this game could be offering to local authorities they could be offering it to the governments and so on. And so to kind of package all of this together, we know we're going to be pumping out this data, but why don't we... And it's also an opportunity for the market. You know, the, the startups like Xero that are out there will probably build some kind of interesting plugins for all of this kind of stuff. It's it's interesting that you you make that point there. This new data will become available. This changes looks like it's coming and it's inevitable. So, you know, what are the opportunities
1: there for fintech startups? But even just putting the architecture in place that allows companies to do that, you know, it's a yeah. it's a million miles away from an 18 character identifier to to find out, what, you know, what was that payment? Where did it go? Yeah. Um, to to be able to have a a virtual receipt with you know rich data attached. Not everyone would use it, but those who did, you know, yeah. it would start to start yeah. to be interesting. I think.
2: I mean, there's big, there's big kind of. Um, if you look at SMEs and liquidity, if you can, if you can do things like part payment or if you can reconcile much quicker, that does kind of create more liquidity. Um, the question is, do you know some of the. The big providers will be relying on making money from providing <laughs> that liquidity at <Yeah>. a cost, <laughs> yeah. and so is there? You know, there's what's the incentive around around that side to actually provide those services uh, because they can make money from offering credit in the meantime. So there's a kind of you know, it's, there's lots of opportunity I think for you know challengers for for fintech, and it's just it's going to be interesting to see how it how it lands. I think. I kind of, you know, I have this sort of exciting view of, you know, payments and I'm a bit in that kind of, yes, it could save the world, <laughs> but, you know, but kind of also aware that actually it's quite a slow, clunky process and could just end up being really complex, uh, and, you know, inefficient.
1: But I think, uh, I mean, my, my take on the kind of PSD2 open banking thing is yeah. that actually it provides air cover for new entrants and, you know, essentially people who really want to, to shake up the industry yeah. to do that it's because I think a lot of people looked at it uh, in terms of open banking or the big five are going to be slow and you know are going to potentially only do what they need to do in order to deliver it but I think there's there's really interesting opportunities and my question is will market forces push open banking better than you know regulation and you know the slow pondering big banks?
2: I think that some of those slow pondering big banks are actually seeing opportunity here so i'm sure they'll be as slow pondering as we we think they might i'm holding out that actually some of them are going to deliver quite well on this stuff and are starting to think about things differently i think there's just this there's that there is definitely a big kind of you know a new range of intermediary that can come in here and, and change the way we manage our finances but not just that i mean one of the one of the interesting things about sort of financial inclusion is whether data inclusion is now the next big thing if I'm if I'm not willing to share will I have access to those services which are cheaper mm-hmm. um, if I'm not willing to share will I still be able to get a product you know is there going to be product exclu- you no know, exclusion around that so just in terms of thinking about financial inclusion there's data inclusion and I think there are lots of innovators, it's not just fintech that can come into this space. There are others who've been working on privacy and data and, you know, how do we make sure we keep people's data private and then you only share what you want to share. Well, they've been doing that for a while in other sectors and we're beginning to see them saying, actually, well, great, transactional banking, transactional information that just adds to the other sorts of data that we had access to, whether that's your, you know, your health data, your energy usage, all of those sorts of things and so the products i think could really could really change
0: Is there an explanation thing that needs to happen here? Because, you know, permissioning around will you give your data to this third-party service, I often find that um, if you explain things in certain ways, it can scare people. So Android, I'm a big Android user, as Jason knows, but it does ask you for every permission under the sun. Would you like Facebook to access your device's camera? Ooh, that gives you access to my camera whenever you want it. Well, yeah, but also if you want to take a photo using Facebook, you kind of have to give it permission. So, like, sometimes asking for too much permission can actually prevent The behaviour you were trying to create in the first place. So, how how do you think you balance that? Is that within scope? Really thinking that through? I think
2: it's. I mean, you know, there are there are organisations like FData who've been saying actually, you know, we need a public awareness campaign here. We need more awareness of what's coming and how people can manage that. Um, I think it's interesting that um, Barclays did some research with Ipsos Mori, which showed that actually there was you know a, a third of people were kind of happy to share their data. A third of people were not happy to share their data and a third of people were just like, oh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But actually, the the research showed that when the proposition is good enough, people will share.
1: I think if you buy five minutes of convenience for most people, most people would would be more than happy to press the button take my data so I don't have to fill this form.
2: And that is interesting because it kind of goes back to this question of request to pay. So Mm. how do you make that work in reality? You say, well, actually, every time there's a payment that comes through to your account, we'll ask you whether you want to do it on an SMS. you have got to go, hang on a minute, I've got a lot of payments. I'm not sure I want that many SMS <laughs> coming through. And there's this balance between control on the one hand, I need control, and convenience on the other hand. And I just sort of think there's this little bit of a seesaw where it's, it's quite tricky in terms of, you know, what's the right product and I, I always see kind of different people coming at different angles saying so, I mean, actually I'll give up my privacy if it means I get access mm-hmm. or I'll give up some you know control in order to get convenience and it's that's that's quite an interesting and this approach. is kind of my worry
0: because I, I you know the the challenger banks and the people focusing on user experience that would design around that I think would design wonderful experiences but no matter how innovative a, a bank can be they've still got that death grip of, of committees whereby somebody somewhere will say oh but have you made them aware of this small article of something for legislation over here and if, have you made them and is this data excessive and there'll be some big internal debate inside a bank that will water down those user experiences and uh, you know if people haven't switched away from the large banks to use this service will they actually get their value from it I think there's, there's a, there's a question to the, the, You can't legislate for
2: that. Anymore. No, you can't. I mean, I think the the thing that, you know, we, we need to see in all of this, and I don't think it, I think it will just apply as much to fintechs and challenges as it applies to banks, is actually, you know, how do we make terms and conditions meaningful? How yeah. do we make our contract kind of like show that we've got integrity? How can we communicate this stuff to people well? Because actually in some senses there's a whole legal profession that you know, there's lots of people who want to do good stuff. But actually, you know, I'm sure when you've been through the authorization process, I mean I don't know if you've faced any challenges along the way, but <laughs> but yeah but you know, things like, you know, can you show that you have Kind of thought about who your products for. Have you appropriately targeted your product? Mm-hmm. What happens when they get into financial difficulties? So what have you thought through on that? So all of those things create. Okay, we have to think this through. We have to create a, you know, a, a framework by which we can tell people if you get into financial difficulty, this is what we will do. Mm-hmm. And so it's there in, in many senses, but it's just how do we how do we make the good stuff meaningful and how do we get rid of stuff that's just. Not necessary. Because
0: some of it feels like backside covering, right? There's, if I put in a lot of legal prose that technically hits all of the right marks that it needs to hit, um, it doesn't matter so much if the consumer understands it, and that feels. It doesn't even me-
2: matter if that's the experience they have. It's yeah. just we've covered ourselves, and I yeah. think it's trying to get that balance between the spirit of this. We want you know consumers to have a good experience with a trustworthy organisation that does the right thing, yeah. and actually that's really hard to kind of define and it's really hard to prove Um, but at the moment we have you know masses of masses of paper.
1: So I guess in moving from the ethereal to the kind of concrete you know what will we seek in the roadmap for payment systems and PST2 and everything else?
2: Well what will we see That's a good question. (laughs) Um, I mean, I guess I've covered up some of those things already, but um, I, I expect we won't see a great deal very quickly, actually. That's the, probably the reality. I think we're we're looking at kind of slow and then perhaps more of a hockey stick approach, you know, where you see some adoption and it should hopefully fly. But it's going to be a little while. I mean, I'm holding out some decent account information services to kind of do personal financial management on a big, big scale, you know, that's going to um, that's gonna sort of take my data in. We, potentially that will, you'll see companies using APIs to kind of provide that sort of financial advice, the robo-advice side of things. Also the energy, energy usage, how can we help you switch? But then health data, you know, my phone collects health data on me. Mm -hmm. You know, and people love their Fitbits, although I'm not quite sure why. Just (laughs) a reminder, I haven't done it. But
0: isn't that strange? uh,
2: Your sleep, your sleep patterns, also.
0: People, people love giving their Fitbit information or their sleep pattern information to their phone, which means Google or Apple are probably getting it. But they're not happy with somebody seeing their NHS data from an insurance company. There's this real, um, like my NHS data is my NHS data. So,
2: what's to stop Google and Amazon start asking, you know, offering health? You know, health insurance. That's the, That's the kind of space, isn't it? You start. I. I. I feel there's a lot of blurring of different industries that, yeah. that come in here. Actually, we're much. There's this question about what does a data-driven economy look like, and how do we kind of how do we manage in that that new setting? So I think what I see is just sort of much more moving to kind of data-driven analytics that could have impact on kind of car insurance, health insurance. You know, there's a whole thing around transparency and insurance generally, but um, you know, separate discussion. Um, mm-hmm. But there's that. You know, I, I get excited about open banking, um, but I think it could be the thing that pushes the data-driven economy more than energy usage, for mm-hmm. instance. I think it's the transactional stuff that really push things. Well, there's so
0: much richness potentially inside it's what did somebody buy. Yeah, there's If you think about the amount of money that... Um, Google and Facebook and others make from potentially creating demand in the economy around advertising. But it, it sort of gets broken. It's like, we're going to create the demand, we're going to take you to the website, you're going to click buy, and then the whole service is broken and we don't know if you ever actually bought the thing. Well, that's
2: going to change now, isn't yes. it? Because it's all about kind of actually, can you is there, you know, platforms, I think like CA management, and, and I know sort of think other platforms as well, but um, just looking at, you know, how do we connect Somebody who wants to buy a green jumper with somebody who's selling a green jumper, mm-hmm. and you know it's a pay. You know, actually, I'm going to trade my data. Can I trade my email? And then you'll give me access to the thing that I want to look at, and you'll provide me with a voucher which I can then trade with somebody else. And you know, people like um, you know Chris Glidhill at Seco, they're looking at you know alternative exchanges of value. You know, actually, is there is that is there a space for that as well? So, but the kind of the marketing issue, I think, is. Is beginning to change. Actually, well, I don't know. I don't know enough about marketing, but I like to think it's you know there's this there's a space. Certainly, people are trying it. What's the what's the value of your attention versus value of your data around preferences?
0: Indeed. Uh, so on that note, we'll uh, we'll say thank you very much for joining us, Faith. Thank you. Uh, and uh, we're now going to throw to an interview recorded uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Costa Peric from the Gates Foundation. Thanks very much to our sponsors for those messages. So
7: today we're sitting down with Costa Perrick. So Costa, you're the Deputy Director of Financial Services for the Poor at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is both an amazing title and probably one you find it very difficult to put on business cards I imagine given yes. the uh, given the length of it. <laughs> the
3: length, yes.
7: We'd love to hear a lot more about um, the good work that you guys are doing at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation but maybe before we get into that we can um, learn a little bit more about you. This doesn't want to start sounding too much like the this is your life kind of introduction in terms of we've been digging into your past but actually your your, your background and actually the places that you've worked with with Swift etc is yeah. really interesting so tell us a little bit more about where you're from and uh, what sort of happened to get you here
3: Yeah in terms of uh, my career I've spent most of my time uh, at Swift 20 plus years in fact mostly on the technology side but you know after 20 years I pretty much did everything at Swift except HR I think but <laughs> but it was uh, the nice thing is that i could do a lot i'm a technologist uh, by by nature by interest by formation i have a computer science degree uh, so always focused on technology the swift experience has taught me financial technology and scalable systems hugely uh, uh, secure scalable systems and then all my career at Swift and then later here at Gates Foundation has been about innovation as well. So how can we change the way we do things to make them better, faster using new technologies? So at Swift, I was always kind of R&D, advanced development. I contributed to uh, Swift. Swift was a huge part of the CLS project here in London back in 2002. So I was There on the program side of Swift. After that, there was the whole redesign of the Swift network, uh, where I ended up being the chief architect, uh, essentially holding the whole system from X25 proprietary to IP, XML, PKI security, and rolling that out to to, uh, essentially 10,000 banks who are users of Swift. And then... The interesting thing that happened was that when, at a particular change of CEOs, the new CEO said to me, well, you have been always on the innovation side, we need to do better. He said, I want Swift to be much more innovative, go figure it out. And, uh,
7: that sounds like a quite a fun challenge too. Uh, it, to
3: uh, it was a bit overwhelming, to be honest, at the beginning because uh, it was like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> what that mean, what, what, is that? what's happening, what can we do? But very quickly, I latched onto some of the key concepts where, which still are very important in my uh, belief system today. One is open innovation, uh, so the deep belief that It's not in your product management or marketing that you will find new ideas. You will find them at your clients, at your competitors, at your partners, and all ideas are good ones. The second key notion, I call it intrapreneurship. So every company, they do have innovation, innovative-minded people. The trick is to spot them and give them give them uh, the runway, yep. and then of course the last key belief system is really that failure is an option. That in order to innovate, there is no way but to try, experiment, and then see what works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's okay to if an experiment doesn't work. So so this that's what InnoTribe, basically became at Swift was this notion of a sandbox uh, which is a term now I think I'm quite pleased that the term is used throughout mm-hmm. and even recently uh, at the regulators this notion of hey let's provide a space for these intrapreneurs to try things in a risk-free environment let's see what works and then based on that double down on what works and, and etc so that's and you know tribe is still quite successful today which i'm happy to to see which yeah. is great and, in, and obviously you yeah. you
7: believe this so much you wrote a book kind of around the context right. of it so exactly, you know, the, exactly. and like you say the the castle in the sandbox for, yeah. for anybody who who hasn't read it really should because it, it's a kind of a forerunner for not only what people like the FCA have been doing, but actually a lot of the, uh, the thinking that we see coming out of innovation departments in banking. So it's uh, you know really a handbook for those people trying to change their organization.
3: Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a, it's a little bit of uh, explanation of these deep beliefs I just mentioned, but also some pragmatic experience. I try to be, the book tries to be a cookbook for, for people essentially like myself who got into this, place where they said change the mindset of the company hopefully that's a help for for such.
0: In terms of changing mindset so I remember being, working for a company in 2009 and I'd just gotten into Twitter Um, and I think in 2010 when I'd been working for them for some time I wasn't enjoying the job but they were in finance and I was on Twitter and I kept seeing this thing called hashtag InnoTribe everywhere and I was like what is this InnoTribe thing? (laughs) And I clicked on the hashtag and I see all of these people like Dave Birch and Chris Skinner, you know terrible humans, terrible Uh, (laughs) having what looked to be like some of the best debates i've ever seen about finance and so that was for me the gateway drug into fintech and now we sit here you know five six years later and and here i am fully into fintech so i think there's been a lot of people who you know inner tribe was really the first of its kind you know you were doing it before it was cool before it was a thing
3: i'm quite humbled that you're saying this Simon, so that you were inspired by this but it was it was an inspiring journey i think uh, it still is and then what happened is that one of the one of the topics in Innotribe became uh, financial inclusion and mobile payments, and the the member banks of SWIFT were kind of uncomfortable with this notion. What what is it? What do we do about it? Uh, what do we need to do? Uh, and so we started exploring that. And then um, my the, when we. St- when you start exploring such things, you start building your networks. Eventually the networks reached to the Gates Foundation, the financial services for the poor people uh, at Gates. And eventually they asked me to come over and do that full time. And I figured, well, that's a good opportunity. And let's, let's uh, kind of double down in my own experiment. Let's double down on this topic. And here I am, three years later. That's, that's awesome. We were, um, you know, we were having a discussion earlier on about
7: uh, with somebody about blockchain, and you know, Simon yeah. made a comment. It's great when the thing that you're really, really interested in then becomes the job that you're doing. And uh, it sounds yeah. like you've you followed a similar curve in that as well.
3: That's right. That's right. When the interesting thing that happened when I joined Gates is that, so I was coming from essentially the incumbent sector the banks the high value payments mm-hmm. uh, but the main topic was totally different was the unbanked people in uh, developing countries and so it was a very very interesting learning experience for me to bring the, the concepts I know well about and then apply them to a new domain mm-hmm. and in the process of doing that I build up a team uh, slowly but surely and, and uh, we developed what we now call the level one project which is this vision of what is financially inclusive digital payment platform and, and what it is at the end of the day from the perspective of the people using it is simply the capacity to send money the way you send a text message it's as simple as and as powerful as that and uh, that's what uh, we are ho- hoping and helping to foster in countries uh, where we work, Africa, South Asia.
0: That's interesting. So it might be worth just stepping back then and explaining a little bit about kind of the, the role you've taken on in terms yeah. of, you know, what are the goals of, of the Gates Foundation and especially the yeah. project for, for the poor there?
3: The Gates Foundation, so let me just... Position this briefly. Um, So the financial services for the poor is one among one strategy as we call them among 27. And uh, most of them are focused on health issues or agriculture, sanitation, vaccine. Uh, But one of the the reasons for existence of FSP, as we call by abbreviation, because it's quite long. Mm Um, is um, that we have ample evidence that being having access to a adequate financial system actually helps uh, in alleviating poverty uh, on the one hand and also uh, absorbing shocks. The the life uh, of the poor people are driven by events. Uh, such as on the good side of things, harvests, marriages, but also uh, much more difficult things such as droughts, deaths in the family. And so the capacity to absorb shocks is amplified by, it's better managed by having access to a financial account where you can for safety purposes, not have all that the cash with you on the one hand, second allows, as we know, better planning. It, it, it is a very humbling experience to learn and live the experience for yourself, because it is expensive to be poor. It's terrible to say, it, but it's, it is true. It is expensive to be poor because everything is Expensive. If you want to send money home I, as a migrant worker, well, if without a digital financial system, well, you have to send, give it to some bus driver who will go to your village and, of course, that is a service that you have to pay. Mm. And we have seen such things as such things as a child can go to school today because the school fee hasn't haven't been paid. It's terrible. So, so, all of that, we know with very extensive data points that, uh, finan- that giving access to a financial system does help. Now, of course, I use the word adequate mm-hmm. system. <laughs> and that is the key, of course, in this, is what is adequate. Well, first of all, it's pretty easy to see what is not adequate, which is that if somebody has to walk... 10 miles to get to the bank branch to be able to do any transaction, well, obviously, that's not adequate. Mm. If you you have to pay a bus driver to, to ship some cash, it's not adequate. So what is actually adequate, and that is the huge technology enabler, is the availability of GSM signal and mobile phones. In all of the countries where we work, in Africa and South Asia, we can see in excess of 85% mobile signal penetration, even in the rural rural areas. And people have, most of them today have what we call the feature phones, simple phones that have call and text capability. But these tools are actually adequate Mm. uh, to do. To to conduct some basic uh, financial systems, and we know, of course, the story of M-PESA in Kenya. There is a less known, perhaps, story in Bangladesh with the system called Bcash, which is quite successful. Uh, also driven by the need to send salary home for, for for migrant workers. So we know that this can work, and this can be hugely helpful. So. The second piece, which has to do more, not with the users, but with the infrastructure, when what is an adequate infrastructure? Well, an adequate infrastructure is the one that can reach to the people. And that means almost by mathematical construction that you need an interoperable system of financial service providers of many sorts, traditional banks but also non-banks in some cases or different players who actually have the distribution mechanism uh, that reaches the poor people. And then you need to federate this into a system that is real-time, immediate uh, uh, transfer of funds because it wouldn't do... it, It has to replace cash. So if I'm at a merchant... It has to be the same effect that if I hand ca- cash over. So it has to be uh, immediate transfer of funds. It has to be non repudiable All of the te- te- technical capa- uh, uh, characteristics of cash, but in a digital form. And then finally, another, the last word, adequate, definition of the word adequate applies to the regulators. Because it is about money. Therefore, it's got to be regulated and therefore it has to be, has the characteristic of fraud management and resilience that is needed. So all of this together, all of this adequacy is what we have tried to describe and that we now call level one project. It describes this vision of what is an interoperable, low value, real time retail platform that works for poor people and that can actually make money for the providers, because that's the other uh, important of this. This is not about CSR. I always say, if it is about CSR, don't come to us. We we are not in that. This is about uh, making sustainable systems over time that can serve the poor but also make money for the providers.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think you make some really interesting points, especially on around regulation and all those points about adequacy. You can get an adequate way of moving value between each other and an adequate infrastructure, but if the regulation doesn't allow for it, and, and if the regulation insists that actually somebody has to walk the 10 miles to the branch before they can take, to use their mobile phone to do anything, the whole thing's pointless. So you, yeah. I think there's a position that the Gates foundation plays there around kind of leaning uh, its influence into helping people understand that if you change those regulations or if you're open-minded to them you could actually create better outcomes for yeah. people and i think that's that's really powerful and and the second point that i think is super powerful is This idea that um, my own experience in my own career is the projects that come up around financial inclusion are, well, this is a nice thing. We should tick tick it in a box. But actually, people aren't seeing an opportunity for hundreds of millions of new customers and a new distribution model. And that distribution model piece is is so interesting because the people that would be in front of you when you live in a village are very different to the people you'd see in a branch and and the the informal communities that build around that. Super interesting point. Yeah,
3: and just think about the size we are talking about. Like, for example, Nigeria, much more than 200 million people, 60% are without any. Wow. uh, And so, if you connect all of these people, just think about the huge number of transactions this makes. Mm -hmm. That's one. Then think about. The, the digital profile of the people you're bringing about in the financial system that means that uh, above the basic payment capability you now start building knowledge and therefore a platform for additional financial services uh, such as microcredits, loans mm-hmm. and, and so on um, and then ultimately you generate a super innovative ecosystem You know, where we have seen in in Tanzania, Mm. for example, uh, the way to acquire a solar battery that can power your phone and light up your house in the evening is paid by a mobile money loan that you pay every day. Wow. It's super powerful. Mm. And this innovation, um, it actually brings me back... uh, to my own background, I I spent my teens in Africa, actually in Burundi. Uh, went to school there. You know, I remember. You 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 in Burundi you you don't you didn't buy a pack of cigarettes. You bought one cigarette. So this this notion of uh, just in time, mm-hmm. just uh, what you need, just what you need sachet type of financial transactions is really what's what we are looking there so
0: So you combine the innovation of that with the commercial incentive that comes around that and then if you can drive it to scale that's really interesting so i think um with impatient people tend to say it's a bit like the galapagos on madagascar it's this one-off example that nobody can repeat and it's never been made interoperable and i know there are many attempts by safaricom and others now to, to try and change that is is the level one kind of project and vision to try and provide a framework to create that interoperability for for these communities
3: yes so the 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 deep belief is that uh, the way to make this happen and this is this is inspired by many sort of histories and stories that we have seen including here in the uk with the faster payment scheme Mm -hmm. and you know the debit schemes uh, so the, there is this notion of uh, shared utility as well that's quite important mm-hmm. uh, because Beza is an exception from one perspective is that it's a single player that made it happen. Usually you would see more players pulling together a little bit, you know, like the banks pull together to manage ATMs mm-hmm. or the telcos pull together to manage antennas because at the end of the day there is a point where It becomes uh, totally uh, non-productive to deploy infrastructures all over again. So uh, there is this notion that uh, a shared utility where, where the providers collaborate on the infrastructure to better compete on the services... It's a story we have seen many, many times in many countries all over the planet. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's quite level one project is fostering this thinking of a shared utility. And and especially for things like fraud management, if you think about fraud management, well, first of all, you got to do it as a provider. And it's not going to bring you any uh, competitive advantage to do it. So why spend money on it? why not pull it together so so there is a lot of that type of thinking as well um, in 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 the sh- in the level 1 project
7: it is uh, you know it is a sort of a scary amazing fact isn't it like you say it's we've got uk banks spending billions of pounds trying to reach tens of millions of c- customers and we've got hundreds of millions of customers across the across the globe who could be accessed by yeah. relatively smaller uh, levels of investment to really sort of make a difference. It's um, quite terrifying, isn't it? And, and actually, I guess, you know, the, the opportunities that new technologies kind of bring, and obviously, yeah. you, uh, you know, like you say, at heart, uh, you know, back to the computing days, you know, you were a sort of a technologist at heart yeah. in terms of what's going on there. You know, the real advancements with what we've seen, uh, you know, maybe not Bitcoin specifically, yeah. but with, you know, digital cash, digital money more broadly, and, you know, the advancements that we're seeing with with things like blockchain, you know, these must be real catalysts for change yeah. in this market.
3: So indeed, um, uh, things like uh, uh, di- distribute, I, I would, I tend to speak more about distributed ledgers uh, um, rather than blockchains, because uh, in the context of what we are talking about, this is more appropriate. As opposed to, I don't know, blockchain for uh, registering real estate assets or something, which makes sense. In the context of digital payments, I think it's all about, at the end of the day, trying to reach this instantaneous, real-time, super low-cost transaction that is settled between end users and providers as fast as possible.
0: I like to think of it almost as like... um a utility version of PayPal that ran with SMS on the front of it. You know, yeah. it's kind of like, it, yeah. it's this, you use SMSs on it, but there might be five or six telcos in a given country that actually run it, or it might be it might be a company that comes along and does it. Yeah, it seems to me like you're almost agnostic, but you're saying something like that would be really should, good.
3: Should exist. I, totally, I agree. Mm-hmm. Very, very well said. So that's kind of one type of thinking that definitely has influenced our own thinking in terms of what level one project is doing and today we consider even that you know uh, some people are pushing this to the notion of collaboration between ledgers with Mm interledger i think this is the right sort of thinking uh, definitely and we're watching that closely so that's kind of one technology the the other huge i think technology related to all of this is of course digital identity which materializes today most concretely with systems like the Adahar system in India, where you provide biometric authentication using fingerprints or iris scans. India has made huge progress in, in, in providing identity to, I think, more than a billion people right now, so huge and amazing amazing yeah. uh, yet i think of it more as a milestone on a broader journey and road uh, towards more of um you know really identity elements and data assets of people that will need safe storage in the future so that's that's another huge technology i also tend to think a lot of It's not really a technology, but it's more of a way of thinking. Uh, I I think more and more open sourcing, because at the end of the day, we are talking about at the end of the day, a commodity, a utility, utility. and ultimately a utility would benefit from an open source model. So that's a useful way of thinking about this, which which we are doing. Uh, yeah, so these kind of three big technology-related topics are hugely, hugely important and beneficial for...
0: An, an identity in a market where you might not ever have a passport um, and then you're never going to see a branch means that you know you need a better, more digital solution for identity. Yeah,
3: and, and you need a different business model, by the way, uh, as well, because um, we call it tiered KYC. So this notion that... Uh, you know, it's okay to not know a lot about a person for a certain type of transactions, bring them in, and then as, you know, more and more is known about the person, then get, get to a higher tier where more things can be done. This notion of tiered KYC, mm-hmm. uh, I think is associated to the technology side because at the end of the day, we are talking about billions of people, so yeah. there is a need for a super efficient way to do this. Yeah. I
0: think the classic example there as well is um, if how many people got a coffee at the same time as you from the same place as you did it, boarded the same flight as you that at the same right. time, yeah. Yeah. and also yeah. then got on the same tube as you did at the same time. Like the, you only need about three, maybe four transactions to know somebody is unique. And then once you've considered that this is a unique individual transacting, you tie that to a mobile phone. And so long as they're transacting on their mobile phone and their transaction pattern is similar, you know, AI and machine learning could actually do an awful lot to build a risk profile around an individual, which I think is very exciting. And
3: then to push it, I, I like, so if you push it a little bit further and now think about, hey, but smartphones are actually around the door at an appropriate, adequate cost Mm-hmm. And then you think about what you just said, plus you add social, social networks data, mm-hmm. that's a huge, huge enabler as well. Which is very different to how banking looks
0: from a regulatory perspective in most jurisdictions, which is there's this giant wall before you can get an account, give me your passport or else. Mm-hmm. And then if you were able to hop over that, then you're in the club. But actually, most of these people can't hop over that line, so they're going to stay outside it. But if I'm sending you one pound and you're sending me another pound back and then it's one pound fifty and two dollars here, then then suddenly, you know, why not let these people transact at at, at almost zero risk and marginal cost? And I think this is where, you know, there's been a a kind of a, you know, an
7: often sort of statement about uh, the innovation out of necessity, um yeah. but a, but actually you know a lot of the things that we're talking about here are massively relevant to to in the UK you know like that type of approach yeah. and I, and I think the you know the necessity of cost efficiency of of um you know banking platforms in places like Africa actually why would you why would you spend a 100 times more to do it in the UK than you Definitely. possibly can do it so you know we we've seen quite a lot of organizations with you know, an eye to, you know, things like Ampesha to replicate them back into, uh, you know, America or the UK or...
3: I think at the end of the day, if this... I like to call this innovation frugal because mm. actually they are not done with huge amounts of... Uh, they are done with a huge amounts of IQ but not necessarily with huge amounts of money. Yeah, And if you think about it, if you achieve this, well then why why would we all here in the UK use a different way. Mm. Uh, you know, three years ago when I changed jobs and moved to America, I was actually surprised by how you have to pay, by, by relative difficulty to pay for certain things in, even in the United yeah. States. And then you go like, wait a minute, if we could do this right there, as simple as sending a text message, well, why not? Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah one of
7: my uh, one of my old bosses had a good saying that was um, think rich act poor and i mm-hmm. think that's a mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what type of organisation you should be you have high aspirations but you deliver the best way of doing it so uh, but um i think you know we've probably taken up more than your time than uh, is is necessary and, uh, with you having a whistle-stop tour here. So, Costa, really appreciate you spending the time. Um, where can people learn a little bit more about the, the Gates Foundation?
3: So, uh, of course, on GatesFoundation.org. But if you want to know more about Level 1 Project, there is a dedicated web- website. It's called Level1Project.org. Level 1 Project in one word. Everything, and that is another principle of what we do, everything we do is public, open, and available on that website. So... I, I encourage checking it out. And
7: we'd um, highly recommend you following Costa on Twitter as well. Where, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh,
3: my, my Twitter handle is Copernic uh, with two Cs at the end. Obviously, it has some innovation connotation <laughs> <laughs>
7: again. <laughs> uh, keep,
3: keep consistency in the theme. It's awesome.
7: Really appreciate your time. Costa, yeah. thank you very much.
4: Thank
3: you very much.
4: Well, hi, I'm here with Niels and Jazz O'Hara, who I met in Washington at a United Nations meeting, of all things. I was blown away by the fact that they've gone from being in careers where most people stick around with the idea of this is our future to suddenly being, I guess, people who have a very strong cause. And so maybe tell us a bit about your cause and your journey and how you got to where you are today.
5: So, hi, Chris. It's great to be here. I'm Jazz, and I'm here with my brother.
4: Hello, I'm Nils.
5: So, our journey really started about a year and a half ago when we were reading a lot about the refugee crisis in the news. And it was back at a time when the headlines were quite dehumanising. Things like swarms of migrants and marauding migrants were the terms that we were seeing in the headlines. And it left us with a lot of questions as to who are these people and what happened to them and where do they want to go and why are they in these camps and what's life like for them. And we started reading more and more about this camp, particularly in Calais. And at the time, a lot of people hadn't heard about it, the jungle. And it was kind of not really talked about that much. So we decided to go. We live in Kent, um, so it's not far from our home. And we made the short journey um, to go and see to try and answer some of the questions that we had um, about the camp and what happened that day will stay with me forever. It was so crazy. Um, Not just the conditions, but the people that we met were so kind and wonderful and open and welcoming and heroic actually in their stories that we, uh, I wrote a post about it on Facebook um, when I got home and basically that post went viral overnight. So it was shared 65,000 times. So it was seen by millions of people and the response and the reaction was just absolutely overwhelming, not just in physical do- donations, but financial donations and people wanting to help from all over the country, all over Europe, all over the world, actually. So it was really, really overwhelming and it kind of spiraled from there.
4: And the the note that you posted um, and the reason it went viral is because you were telling the stories of the migrants, not just, you know, talking about these people who are, you know, as you you say in the media, um, almost like ants. It's actually human beings.
5: Exactly. So I think that it's that personal relatable level that really um, struck a chord with people. The fact that Nils and I were, you know, ordinary people um, from the UK that didn't have a background in charity, we didn't have a background in politics, but we were still, um, yeah, kind of touched by this situation and I think that reached a lot of people because of the kind of human level.
4: And what were your jobs at that point? What what were you doing as you're living?
6: So I worked in advertising as a creative and jazz worked in fashion. So um, very different careers. But when we started doing this, everything spiraled out of control so quickly that we just felt that we had to focus on this 100%. So it seemed like the the obvious thing to do for us to quit our jobs. There was no question about it. Within a month of Jazz writing that post, we had both really quit our jobs and started working on this full time.
4: And what's interesting is that... Um I've connected with you mainly because I went to this meeting about digital identities in Washington. And a lot of people in banking are probably thinking, why the hell is Chris interviewing Nils and Jazz about refugees? So what's this got to do with identity and financial services, for example?
6: So I guess the link is blockchain technology and the use of this for identity in the future uh, and digital identity. And I think that that's going to be very important with this mass movement of people in stopping things like people smuggling and human trafficking. And when people are in this situation, they generally either don't have documents or they lose their documents on the way that's why we were at this conference because we wanted to give our version of what we've seen on the ground and why it's important for these people to have a digital identity
4: so if we looked at the stories of the people that you are meeting in cali um you know how how can they get to cali without having documentation for example so
6: they use illegal routes um that's the only way they can do it so you know Boats across the Mediterranean and then walking across borders, across the whole of Europe. So yeah, generally it's very small, very dangerous crossing, very small boats and very dangerous crossing across the Mediterranean. Way too many people per boat. So a lot of people die doing this, but there's no legal way for them to get across. So they have to do it because, you know, the places that they're coming from are so unsafe.
4: And there's no record of some of those people because they didn't have documentation in the first place.
6: Yeah. So a lot of them will never have had any documentation Um, and a lot of them will have lost it along the way we've had many examples of people who did have passports and a lot of Syrians you know have passports and stuff but you know they might lose them in the Mediterranean or people smugglers might take them off them and give them to someone else or damage them or for whatever reason
4: and it's seems as though a lot of these people are coming from syria afghanistan but actually it's not it's a whole range of different countries i know there's some stories you were saying about i think somalia or sudan you know where kids were being threatened and could have lost their lives so there's a whole mixture of people in the camp
5: absolutely i think there's a common misconception that this refugee crisis is really focused around syria and the middle east but actually in calais we're talking about eritreans uh, as you say sudanese they make up two of the main nationalities in the camp along with afghans so we're really talking about a melting pot of people representing the world's atrocities actually um and yeah as nil said that identity is a huge issue because th- this makes people very vulnerable that they don't have um identity documents they're not registered anywhere in these countries so for example when calais we have a lot of unaccompanied children and they are slipping under the radar which is making them very very vulnerable to predatory behaviors and um, when it comes to um yeah that their, their safety you know no one will be looking for them if they go missing so it's really really worrying um, and also the fact that it's happening on our doorstep you know it's really history in the making and i feel that not just the kind of use of blockchain technology as a tool for um, allowing people their digital identity is linking kind of our work to the bank to banking the reason why we're also here is because this crisis is a responsibility of every single one of us. And it relates to all of us, actually, because it's on our doorstep and it's happening around us. And we all need to take some kind of action. And I think it's very, very important that we all step up and do something
4: uh, so do I. That's part of the reason why you're here tonight. But um, I think one of the key things is that you both, I would say sacrificed, but you didn't. You kind of chose to leave your jobs and dedicate yourself to the cause. So what is the cause? It's called the Worldwide Tribe. What is that?
5: Absolutely. So the Worldwide Tribe is our organisation, which has a two-pronged approach. So not only do we run humanitarian projects on the ground, which cover all sorts of things like installing wi-fi into refugee camps but also providing food and shelter and clothing and things like that so basic needs and um, things like wi-fi also art and creative projects but the other kind of prong to that two-pronged approach is raising awareness and trying to overturn this negative kind of connotations around immigration and that narrative of refugees and immigrants illegal immigrants as victims or as um yeah, in, in any kind of negative way, what we really want to kind of make people realise is that they're they're human, just like you or I, and it could have been any one of us in this situation. And it's just a matter of circumstance that, you know, we, we aren't and, and the people in the camp in Calais are. And as I say, I think we all need to step up and kind of look out for each other in this situation.
4: Yeah, I've been quite shocked at the lack of media coverage of the individuals. I mean, that's what you're really shining the spotlight on. And just before we started this conversation, I said to Niels, what do you think of the two million pound wall that the Brits are going to put around Calais? He said, well, maybe it's going to be a good thing because a 14 year old boy died in the motorway just at the weekend. And you sort of go 14 year old boy. I mean, you know, what, what are the stories that stand out for you?
5: Well, talking of the 14-year-old boy, we actually have a 14, well, he's 15 now, but we have a foster brother who um, lived in the camp and he has a very, very crazy story. He also crossed from the Calais jungle to the UK at 14, hiding underneath the Eurotunnel train and um, his is obviously a story that stands out to us because we're very close to it on a personal level. But yeah, he, he represents one of very, very many young boys who are fleeing compulsory military service and they are... Are crossing the Sahara Desert, you know, he didn't eat for 15 days. He crossed the Mediterranean Sea in an unsafe boat, which capsized. He crossed Europe alone. Um, his two friends died in Libya. You know, it's a it's a, a story that you hear over and over again, actually. And he represents a large number of young unaccompanied people. Um, and yeah, we hear many many stories um, that kind of stand out to us. I wouldn't even know where to start, but we have actually many friends that we've kind of and relationships that we've developed in the camp with people that we've become close to because you know they're our age or we have similar interests or we connect on a level that we would be friends outside of this situation as well you know.
4: And I know from reading some of the things on Facebook and um, your stories about the warmth that you felt, and you mentioned it, but you know the fact that these people who have been treated so badly um, embrace you, offer you food, treat you as family, it seems incredible.
6: Yeah, we have the most amazing experiences in that camp, and every single time we go, we're met with you know more kindness and more hospitality, which is incredible for people in this situation. A lot of them don't have much to give, but they will share what they do have with you, and they always want you to come and have a cup of tea with them and sit down and they want you to sit in their home with them which is just you know maybe a tent or absolutely nothing at all but they still want to share that with you and share that food and whatever they have with you and make you feel at home which is really incredible seeing what these people have been through
4: and just to wrap up i guess um where can people find out more
6: so we have a website, theworldwidetribe.com, but also we post every day on our Facebook, uh, which is facebook.com forward slash the tribe, and Instagram as well. So that's at the World Wide tribe. So you can check us out on any of those...
4: So I think you've demonstrated the power of social media but equally the rise of digital identities and blockchain and just to underline the uh, United Nations has a goal by 2030 for every person on the planet to be recorded at birth as a citizen of earth and have their digital identity recorded on some form of distributed ledger blockchain is most likely. Looking to the future what's going to be most exciting for you guys in terms of I know you've got your new ambulance that's been pimped um, but what's coming next?
5: We do we do have an amazing uh, vehicle which has been donated to us which is now looking very beautiful after being pimped you're absolutely right so watch out for that so it's going to be on channel yes yeah, e4 isn't it but we have lots of exciting stuff coming up in the pipeline lots of worrying stuff as well because the future is kind of unclear when it comes to the, the Calais jungle but we are continuing to grow our reach across Greece and Turkey and um yeah we're continuing to grow kind of as a group of people and as a movement um so i think that we'll con- continue in that vein spreading awareness we're making a documentary at the moment which highlights the journey so we have actually taken the journey from the border of Syria in Zatari camp in Jordan through Turkey and then across to Greece um, Um, Greece and France and the UK and basically highlighted individuals who are affected by this crisis along the way. And that documentary will then kind of show this tapestry of individual stories that make up this bigger picture. Um, So that's coming out next month, which is really exciting. We have lots of important content coming out about people that we've met and things that we've experienced along the way um so yeah if you watch watch out on our social media channels for those and in terms of yeah kind of projects on the ground we're also developing our wi-fi project and which is really exciting to be able to connect as many people as possible so they have access to not just communicating with their families but also information about their asylum claims and opportunities like learning languages which are really important for people in these camps when they have they're they're very bored as well you know we have some amazing minds amazing brains we have lots of bankers and engineers and doctors and lawyers and very very educated people um that we're meeting all the time in the camps so yeah allowing them some kind of access to um a bit of an outlet is really really important as well i think
4: we could talk for hours but uh, i think i'll just conclude by saying go to the worldwide tribe and donate and support jazz and neils thank you very much
5: thank you So that's all we've
4: got
0: time for this week. But remember, keep subscribing, keep liking our podcast and recommending it to your friends. Until next week, this has been Fintech Insider. Thank you very much.